be here. Um, I'm hoping this will be really interactive because I know that you guys have very diverse backgrounds and I don't want to be talking about something and totally miss the point if someone's not interested in it. Um, so what I propose to do is just touch on some points like a, a whistle stop for of, of transitional justice questions or issues in Libya. Um, we might take a break halfway through so I keep you engaged and watch a little video. Um, and then I want to have as much time at the end for questions. Um, but I also really like questions and interruptions, so please feel free to do that. Um, especially to tell me that I'm saying something that's really obvious and I'm wasting my time. Um, so I thought I'd just do a little bit of political context to the situation in Libya and then um, just set a few themes that I'd like you to keep in mind as I, as I go through the topics I discuss. Um, so, because I don't know how familiar everyone is with the political situation in Libya, or indeed even if you are, it changes very regularly. Um, so at the moment in Libya we have not one, not two, but three governments um, vying for uh, control of the country. So we have the GMC, which is the General National Council government, uh, which was one that was elected in 2012. Um, and so they were the first elected uh, parliament and, and the government that resulted from them. Uh, in 2014 we had another election but they didn't recognize it so they stayed um, took over the west of Libya and in the east we had the second government uh, which is the government that's part of the House of Representatives. You'll see that we just come up with new names for the governments because we can't get rid of them. Um, and then their mandate came to an end and so they wouldn't leave either um, and so the international community facilitated through the UN support mission in Libya a sort of political agreement that resulted in the third, which was meant to be the conciliatory government, which is the government of national accord, that had elements of both governments, but it hasn't been recognized fully, so all three are um, in play. That, that has resulted in quite a few interesting practical issues, um, including what the central bank does in terms of paying salaries, whose salaries do they pay, who do they recognize, um, it's obviously also resulted in issues with, um, well, most institutions like the National Oil Company, so who controls it, which is obviously a really big issue in Libya because of the revenues from the oil. What's happened is that we have basically two of everything. Um, so we have two versions of the central bank and two versions of the National Oil Company, um, and it depends on who you talk to, who they think is the governor, who they think is the president of the National Oil Company. Um, and indeed, in practice, um, we have, we've had conflicting, actually, so resolutions taken by the governors of, of both sides, and, and then you have a situation where it just depends which militia is supporting them. Um, but we can pick up on these as we speak. So throughout this talk, I'd like to take three themes in mind. Uh, the first is the concept of revolutionary legitimacy, which has really taken stronghold in Libya. So we see it enshrined in law. Uh, many of the laws will start by recognizing the importance of the revolution of February 17th and contextualizes all the law in that context. The second theme is the idea of, as we've seen in many other places, by rule by law versus rule of law. Um, and what we've seen here, again, is laws that have really enshrined some very problematic issues, uh, which would not be consistent with any understanding of human rights or indeed the concept of rule of law. So for example, we had um, very early on an anti-glorification law, which meant you couldn't talk positively about the previous regime. Or indeed, worse even, that you can't talk negatively of the current revolution um, and you carry prison as a, as a criminal offence. That was over. That was deemed to be unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, which is which is a, which is a great moment to see the Supreme Court in action. Since then, the Supreme Court has really been made 
very difficult for them to take any further um, decisions because the militias have been had to over the Supreme Court at one point. And so the Supreme Court has, um, has effectively stepped down for the time being to take any decisions because they felt that they couldn't take the correct decisions and didn't want to be bullied into the wrong ones. So they suspended the judiciary for that purposes. We also had a political isolation law which um, eliminated anyone who was employed by the previous regime, which in a country that is very heavily dependent on people being part of the civil servant, civil service, and over a million people are employed by the old regime has disenfranchised many people. And this is not just political positions, it includes all the deans of the universities, um, it includes uh, some, some people, a lot of people in education, a lot of people in the business sector as well, but the business sector that's owned by the state, so it, it really paralyzes the country. And one of the interesting things about that law was actually the fact that it was it was passed under duress by the militias. They held the parliament hostage, effectively. And the irony is a lot of people in parliament then had to step down because the law actually applied to them. Um, so they, they had to put themselves out of jobs. Um, then there was a law which banned criticism of the revolution on media. Uh, there was a law that banned the discussion of anything said by the Mufti, who is a, a really big figure in India and, and a massive problem in the, in the process. So he's a religious leader who has been inciting a lot of violence and legitimizing a lot of militias. Um, so there's a law that banned any discussion of any of his fatwas in media. So you can't, it's not even just criticism, it's just a discussion of it. Uh, and then finally, well not finally, that's just a sample, there's a, uh, an amnesty law that was passed which is actually forward-looking, which I think is the first time an amnesty law of that kind has been passed. Uh, which uh, gives a blanket amnesty looking forward for any acts committed that were ne necessitated by the February 17th revolution. Uh, so if you can justify it or link it to the you being part of the revolution, then you got an amnesty and it, it creates a real sense of impunity. So theme two is this kind of rule by law versus rule of law. And the third theme stems out of the last one, which is the issue of impunity. Um, and I think we have seen a, a real that was always an issue under Gaddafi, but it's been enshrined further with these, with these laws at the moment. And it, just to give you a reference point, there's not been a single fighter who's been brought to, to any court in Libya, or there's been not a single um, accountability held for any of the, the militias. Indeed, the militias have been integrated into the official forces. And so what we see now is that the previous perpetrators are actually now enforcers uh, with no vetting process. So just those three themes to keep in mind. Well, I thought I would start with, because I know the ICC is still quite a, a sexy topic in, in academic circles, to talk a little bit about the what I call the rise and fall of the ICC in Libya. Can I get a show of hands of how many of you are, are doing work on the ICC? Okay, so it's okay, it's <laughs> <laughs> uh, About four, okay. Um, so I want to start with, so 2011 and what people perceive the ICC to be in Libya and where we are today. When the ICC was brought into Libya was very quick. It was sort of within weeks of the revolution taking place. We had Resolution 1970, which gave them quite a, a big mandate, which is to investigate the situation in Libya since the 15th of February. So it's a, it's a pretty a pretty hefty mandate. Um, there was quite quick arrest warrants issued in June that year. So it, was, it, was, it seemed like there was real momentum. And there was a real sense of uh, excitement in the country. And it felt like it was going to, to yield some, some results. There were a few obstacles and a few problems with this. Well, one of the biggest ones was Acampo being the prosecutor. And I think he hindered the process massively, and I'll, I'll get into some examples later. Um, but I remember very clearly being in Tripoli when 
the resolution was passed and there was marches in the street of people sort of chanting for the ICC and it was just incredible um, and then how, how quickly that changed. Um, so I think that the way it changed quickly was because actually since the arrest warrants in 2011 nothing happened. There was really no indication of what was going on, there was no follow-up, there, there was no members of the, of the investigative teams of the ICC anywhere on the ground to be seen investigating any of these um, crimes um, and it just disappeared off the radar. And I think this is due to several sort of serious shortcomings. So this is my um, rant about the ICC. So I think there is, there's five really, really big shortcomings that really had an impact. And one is the management of expectations. Um, yeah, a good case study actually, if you look at the first case that was just similar, similar timeline to, to Libya was Kenya. Um, and in public opinion in Kenya, in, at the end of 2010, when, when it, the when ICC was seized, 78% of Kenyans were seen or had expressed that they were supported the ICC investigations. Within one year, it dropped to 51%. And I think that's very uh, that's very symbolic of what would happen in most countries that if you were with DRC or Libya, you'd get the same figures or worse. But I think there's a real assumption of knowledge that people understand the ICC and its mechanisms and its limitations within the population in a way that doesn't really exist. Most people on the ground really see the ICC as this all-powerful, um, you know, highly resourced, militarily supported global institution that can bring justice, and it really isn't the case. And I think there's a genuine miscommunication between the ICC and, it, and what it can do to the ground. Um, and that is made worse by people like Ocampo who make these really grand and very um, grandiose claims of what will be achieved through the ICC. And I think the fix to that isn't, isn't hard, it's just being having some kind of media strategy that you tell people on the ground what's going on. The other issue is accessibility. Um, this idea that the ICC adopts, which is of using focused investigations and use of limited witnesses strategy, I, I have a problem with because I think for a lot of people, the ICC is, is so, some kind of cathartic experience. And, I, and the fact that they, the investigations are always so limited because of resources or because of just the strategy that's adopted, it eliminates that possibility from people. And I don't think that's consistent with the founding principle of it being a place to give a voice for victims. And, and I think that was a real issue there. I mean, I, I often go to the ICC website just to see if there's even a way to find a number to call if you want to report something, if you want to give information or, or anything. And it's just very inaccessible. Um, and I think there should be a, a dual purpose of the ICC of sort of some kind of recording system where people can give you things. It doesn't mean you have to investigate everything, but it, it should have some kind of crime reporting mandate. Um, but also, it will, if you have that mandate, it helps you use positive complementarity better. Um, because I think you can, you can then figure out what you can take forward and what can be shared. And, and there's a real genuine ability to get more outcomes. Um, and just in terms of figures, in, in the Libyan case, so um, 90 reports have been filed by the Registry's Victim Participation and Preparation Section and reporting on the situation in Libya, and only four of them referred to cases that had been filed by victims in Libya. Three were in 2012 and one was in 2014, which just shows that it's, they're not, people aren't really engaging with it. The third problem I have with it is its responsiveness. Um, it's, it doesn't really respond to changing circumstances in, in any real way. Um, investigations are meant to be dynamic by nature. Um, and I think the, the fact that the bureaucracy that it takes for them to investigate is that they always use the window where they actually can get evidence. Excuse me, when the 
Yeah. No, please do. Yes. Uh, I think I spoke to this. However, uh, is a general problem with any judicial system. And I guess when we go to a level which is an international level, and of course it has to do with some politics and bureaucracy is even bigger. Mm -hmm. Of course, I guess. I mean, I think that even in a domestic uh, uh, level, justice or judicial system is not that. But I'm not focusing on the judicial system element. I'm focusing on the investigative element. So the, the, the role of the ICC as an investigator, as opposed to as a, a court in this instance. So in an investigation, normally in a domestic system, actually investigators tend to get the evidence quite quickly because they have to submit it to a court. But it, the, the red tape that encompasses all of the ICC means even the investigative element of it is hindered in getting to the ground and interviewing people. And what happens then is really most of the evidence is gone by the time they get fully engaged. Um, and I think that's a really big obstacle. There's a sort of concept in, in investigations which is called the golden hour, and if you miss it, um, then you, you lose. And that's, that's my concern. I, I appreciate that courts take a long time but it's not even that stage that I'm concerned about. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, It's also, I think, if they rely on, actually in their investigations, on this kind of contact with, with high-level individuals and using sort of, uh, you know, the, what's the, just mutual legal assistance type treaties to rely on getting evidence, and I think that's really problematic, again, because you're, you're delaying it and you're not really in touch with the right people to get the evidence for the, for the information you need. So, it seems like that element is really problematic, um, which leads them to having to work with partnerships. So that's my next thing. The way they work with partners, and as a partner, quote unquote, of the ICC, so we, so Lawyers for Justice in Libya collected a lot of evidence in the first two, two to three weeks of the crisis. And actually, the evidence that we used was one of the fundamental elements that was used for the, for the arrest warrants issued by the ICC. Um, and I think the problem with working in partnership with the ICC is that you get no support, you get no recognition, and you get no protection. Um, and really they don't seem to understand that the relationship is meant to be give and take. Um, and I think the problem here is we've seen over and over again is them saying we don't have access, and, but we're well, you know, we have to work with civil society, and then civil society comes forward and is like, yeah, but you know what? Um, you know, we can't really be responsible for your security, um, so you just be careful when you're collecting this evidence. And it's very difficult, really, for civil society to understand that message because they want to see these people prosecuted. And so you put yourself in danger and you just get absolutely no support. Um, and I think that's a problem. We can discuss later, off record, <laughs> some of the things we faced with, with the ICC, but I think that is a huge, uh, a huge problem. And what it then indicates, what, what then happens is a lot of civil society actually wants to detach from it. And what we've seen in Libya is people going, you know what, working with you is actually incriminating. <laughs> um, as a, as a, but we prefer to maintain our independence. And then what you end up having, actually, civil society losing the ability to impact cases, and we end up just doing advocacy. Trying to, ICC, trying to get the ICC to change, trying to get um, things happening, and you lose the ability to really influence cases. And I think that's a shame. And then finally, this idea of, well, two more points, solidarity, which I guess comes a bit with, with that. but. For a lot of people on the ground, the, the ICC is really a symbol of hope. When they somehow come to your rescue, or they seem to come to your rescue, it's, a, it's an indicator that they're with you. They're, you know, there's some, sort of, some form of international solidarity with your, with your suffering. Um, 
but then there is no follow-up on that. And I think there needs to be visual kind of seeing the, seeing the court work for it to then work. And I think that's a, a big problem I, I have with that. And then finally, the security and risk aversion that the court has, and there, it seems though, from speaking to a lot of people I know in the court, is that they seek to avoid risk instead of mitigate it. Um, and, and I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of their duty of care as well. Um, I think in their minds, they see their duty of care as it, li you know, it, it lies when somebody's in danger. So, let's take a step back. Your duty of care as an investigator is putting someone in danger because of them working with you. If they're already in danger, that's not an issue. And I think that's what's being missed by the ICC. And so they're like, oh, well, these people are in danger. My life is in danger regardless of what I'm doing with you. It's, and your duty of care is to make sure that I'm not in any more danger. But I think that is one way that they just then push, pull back and just don't in, 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 um, get involved with people. Um, and I think there's ways around that. So I've just got a few ideas here, which, I just, which I've discussed many times with, with people within the court. Um, you can still do a lot of investigation without having to be on the ground. So you know, obviously technology is one way. Uh, we as an organization use a lot of encrypted online stuff for people to give us information with, without putting themselves in danger. Um, you can do more on confidentiality and actually keep witnesses purely anonymous, completely anonymous. Um, you could speak to everyone. I, I know that sounds silly, but the, the strategy of focusing on just targeting a few people makes it much easier to coerce those people and intimidate those people as a country or as a state. But if you speak to a lot of people, then actually that's harder to coerce an entire population. And so I think it's really important that you, the wider you, you cast your net, the less likely you are to lose your witnesses. Um, so all negative, maybe I'll end on a positive note, um, very, very small positive note. But just this last November, the, the court has said that they've recognized you know, that they've made some mistakes in Libya there and that they're intending to put more resources into it. And they've, they've indicated that there will be arrest warrants issued very soon. So whether that tra translates into more belief on the ground or whether it just enshrines their failure further, because that doesn't translate into anything again, is something to be thought of. Um, I didn't want to go into the specific cases, but I'm happy to pick up questions on those. The second topic I want to talk about is sort of criminal justice within Libya, so not the, not the ICC side of it. Uh, there have been some attempts to address things at the lo local domestic level. The most noteworthy, I guess, is the trial of 37 of what they what are called the regime symbols, so key members of the Gaddafi regime. Um, so that trial uh, was momentous because it had key figures, including uh, Saif Gaddafi, Sanusi, and, and very high people within the um, secret service in Libya and the police structures. The problem was that it was utterly flawed. Um, most of the most of those most of the defendants didn't know what they were being charged with. Um, they were told on the day sometimes what, what, what crimes were being put to them. There was no legal representation for most of them. In fact, SAFE wasn't even in court. Uh, he was in a different location, was being tried in absentia. Um, there was a death penalty rule for, for, for quite a few of them. And in fact, uh, SAFE was being tried for, the death, with, for crimes that had a death penalty in absentia. Um, it, it's been fundamentally flawed, um, and, and the UN's report and various other reports have said that. 
But what's been interesting as an outcome is actually people on the ground weren't happy about the fact that the court ended up with really strong sentences for really unpopular people, but they didn't buy it. They didn't buy the process. And I think that was really interesting to see quite a lot of uproar within people who really dislike these people saying, but this wasn't, this wasn't a proper trial. I think that was really interesting because there was a lot of feeling at the beginning, including from myself, saying people just want them hanging. They don't really care about this. But actually, there was a real sense of, no, 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 I want to know what happened. Um, you have this opportunity. You have like Snoozy, who's the black box of the entire regime there. For God's sake, find out what was going on. Find out where my family members that have been missing for 20 odd years are. And there wasn't really that hot, that kind of trial where any any form of questioning or interrogation or anything happened with the defendants. And they always tried in groups. And it was a very I don't know if any of you saw it, but it was a very odd trial where they would say, uh, so. Defending 1, 7, 15, and 34, so you have to remember which number you were. Um, you were looking, we're looking at you for crimes 4, 16, 24. <laughs> and a lot of the crimes weren't really directly linked to um, legislation, and so people had to guess what they were talking about. And there, it was some of the crimes were sort of hybrids between international crimes and domestic crimes, and it's just this very odd, um, very odd trial. Um, and now it's, be, it's been appealed, so it's being, um, it's being reviewed at a, like um, just a just appeal not for the actual crimes, but for the process. So hopefully, we might actually see a retrial for a lot of these people. Um, we also had a transitional justice law, uh, which highlighted one of the key problems of re reconciliation, uh, reparation, and accountability. And there was a much bigger focus on reparation than anything else. And again, there the sense was, we're trying, they're trying to buy us off. Uh, this is just about giving people money. And we've seen that repeated several times. So there's a decree issued by the Ministry of Justice in relation to, to sexual crimes committed in the, in the conflict. And in that as well, there's absolutely zero mechanisms for accountability. It's just paying victims uh, reparations that were predetermined. Um, and the transitional justice law starts with these words that say, acknowledging the, the inherent justice of the 17th of February revolution which is obviously very problematic if what we're trying to also look at within this law is what happened within that revolution. Um, and there was also within it a, a concept of a reconciliation commission, but there was absolutely no criteria of, of how to keep it inclusive of everyone in the country or indeed to make it impartial in any way, so that was problematic. And indeed, none of these mechanisms have started. Um, on the domestic law level, and within Libyan law, there's really no distinction between, um, well, there's no recognition of any international crimes per se. And so the, a lot of the concepts within international crime, including uh, command responsibility, etc., just don't exist within the, the, the domestic legal system. And so what was happening a lot with, within the ICC case and the, the admissibility hearings was the Libyan government saying, no, 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 but we can put them in place for these trials. Um, and obviously that's problematic um, for, for, many, for many reasons. And it was really frustrating because um, it was very, very well regarded uh, legal minds that were coming up with that solution. And I think it was, it was, a, it was a bit of a joke by the Libyan state to put forward these kind of fixes for interim results, um, very specific to, to two individuals. The penal code in Libya has a death penalty mentioned in over 30 articles. Um, in fact, me running my organization potentially is a death penalty offense because you are not allowed to um, 
let me find the exact word in a moment. Um, Wild organization which could be deemed as illegal. And then who deems it illegal is left to interpretation. Um, and, in, and often it's been used to deem any organization that are questioning the state to be illegal. Um, there's also just generally disproportionate punishments um, within the penal code that I, I'm, I'm happy to share a list with you. Um, and then finally, what we've also seen is this discrimination of being enshrined within the law. So we've seen quite a few mechanisms for transition justice, including uh, to support the families of martyrs and the missing. However, the terms martyrs and missing are defined as those who were martyred or are missing fighting for the February 17 revolution. So if you are fighting for, the, for Gaddafi or the previous regime, you aren't classified as missing in the Yeah. <laughs> that's the right reaction. Um, and that's been a, a, an issue we're really struggling with um, because that you go, a lot of people will go to register family members as missing within the ministry and they're like, but you're from this community and therefore you were with that regime, so you can't register here. We've actually just filed our first case for someone who's missing, uh, who's from the Gaddafi, so, and it was actually accepted, so hopefully we'll get some results there. Um, in addition to the amnesty law I mentioned, um, there's been a, a further amnesty law granted recently, um, which is meant to help facilitate the peace process by granting it to members of the Gaddafi regime, uh, but that hasn't been recognized by the two other governments. Um, and then finally, I just want to talk about courts and prisons in Libya. So the courts, um, like I mentioned, the Supreme Court had a couple of really good rulings and then they had to step down effectively. Um, but we also have issues with just courts in general because they rely actually now on militias for their own security because there's no security forces. And so you then, as a judge, obviously can't rule against that malicious interest or, um, or indeed question their innocence. And we've seen that with prosecutors as well. Um, and then obviously there's problems with, with uh, fair trials and, and witness protection, both in court in terms of securing their privacy, but also out of court and giving them any kind of protection or relocation or, or the like. Um, and what we've seen is not just threats of witnesses to witnesses, but actually judges and prosecutors have been so heavily threatened that the judges have effectively come together and said we're declaring the judiciary suspended for the purposes of criminal work. So for the last four years or so, all that's being done in Libya is pure civil. Um, civil cases. Um, and what we've seen is a lot of the really strong judges who had taken positions have had to leave the country. Um, and actually, so the Libyan judges organization is now based in, in Tunisia and now in Libya. Um, and then on prisons, again, they're not under the control of the state. Um, and there's no, there's no judicial oversight, there's no training for the prison staff. Um, and just to give you some numbers, there are over 10,000 prisoners from the conflict still in prison um, since 2011 with a few additional people in, in the interim. Less than 10% of them have had any charges put to them. Um, and then from our research on the ground, uh, more than 53%, if you're in prison or you're being detained, um, you have a 53% chance of being tortured, which is actually a really, really underestimate. I think that if you look at that and couple it with what people in Libya say the definition of torture is, which we've also done a lot of research on, um, a lot of the things that they deem as not being torture, we would think are horrific here. And so when someone says, no, I haven't been tortured in prison, 
the threshold is much higher than what it is in, in, in gold. And I think that's one of the things we're having to deal with is actually to educate people on the fact that you know what happened to you isn't right. Um, but also there's a real culture in Libya that you go ahead of life, so shut up about it. Um, and there's a real sort of apologetic when he speaks to survivors of torture of them saying, I don't really want to talk about it, I'm one of the few that came out of that prison alive. And so the 53% is really, in my mind, uh, the, one of the biggest underestimates we've ever had. I would, I would safely put the number at near 80 to 90%. If you couple that with the fact that in Libya, one in, one in five households has a person missing or in detention at the moment. And the reason you're missing is because you've been kidnapped most times by a militia for ransom or for political motives. Put those two figures together and you're developing a, a very, very traumatized country uh, with zero recourse to justice. And the final element, I guess, of that picture is that the, the, the group of people who's most systematically attacked now are, are activists and human rights activists in particular. And so in just six months last year, more than 500 activists were targeted and, and in a lot of instances killed. Um, and which means, again, that not only are a lot of our judges out of the country, but the majority of our civil society is now operating <coughs> in Tunisia and Egypt and Malta. Um, and very few people are on the ground. And so you have a situation where all you have on the ground now are, are militias, <laughs> effectively, uh, with no oversight by the government. And what's really frustrating is whenever you speak to government officials, the language you get is, well, we're new to this, and we really don't have experience. Um, and you know, we just need all the help. We know, no, we know, we know it's not our problem. Um, and this real sense of just total distance from the situation, and, and they feel like if you say you have no control of the prisons and it's not your, and it's not your fault, then it's fine. Um, and it's kind of, um, and you see that at the UN level. And the UN actually in resolutions, time after time, will say we acknowledge that Libya is still building its institutions, and we therefore, you know, acknowledge how difficult this is for the government. And so they're encouraging this impunity within the society, because no one's putting any pressure on the government to actually, or any of the governments, to do anything about it. So there's ways to be creative about this, I think, and the state isn't using them. Okay, so you don't have control of the prisons, understood. You can't really run the judicial system, fine. But you have other mechanisms available to you. There is Resolution 2174 from the Security Council, which allows you to freeze people's assets, um, including militias, and that's not really being used as much as it should. Um, you can just vet people before you give them jobs, and I think that's not happening at all. In fact, in Libya, this, the central bank is playing this card that it's neutral, and so it says we're not taking a side in this conflict. What that means in practice is that it's paying salaries for all sides, and paying salaries to all the militias. And really, really good salaries, sort of four to five times above the average in the country. And so actually what we have is this very odd situation where the central bank is subsidizing Libya civil war because it continues to pay both sides to fight each other. And actually, there's absolutely no incentive to stop that. And then the other two things that we, we're working on is, is looking at universal jurisdiction as well as domestic jurisdiction in countries outside Libya. Um, so in terms of the political agreement, I alluded to it a couple of times, but I think I'll, I'll just, I won't spend much time on it because it's, it's useless and it's going to be defunct soon. Um, but it's the, it's, it was the broker deal by the UN. And one of the biggest problems with, with the way that with this was set up is that the UN support mission in Libya is there wearing the hats of both the Security Council and the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. 
So in theory, they're meant to be doing the political side as well as the legal and human rights side, which is obviously illogical because it's a conflict. Uh, and so they are in the situation where they're trying to get political settlements and get all parties to the table and to sign and therefore need to offer amnesties, etc. Whilst at the same time, trying to monitor and hold accountable the same exact actors they're trying to do these deals with. Um, and what obviously always wins is the political side of Hansel. And what we've seen is this really bizarre kind of act that's been happening, where they put out these reports and then they just quickly ignore them um, to get the political deal done. And so we saw a, little, a political agreement that, that had you know, almost 16 rounds of conversations. Not one was civil society invited to attend. Um, and you have a situation where there is no accountability mechanisms in the agreement. There is no conditionality in it. The only provision of it states that um, the wording is no prosecution of any individual merely for fighting adversaries during the conflict is a guarantee that all parties give. And then they have a caveat out of that that says this doesn't apply to international crimes. But obviously, both, all parties are signing and agreeing to it. So how enforceable that caveat is, I'm unsure about. Um, and I think there's, there's, and also there's no victim focus at all in any of this. And there's been um, utter marginalization of civil society and minorities in the process. And so what we've, what we've seen is, is two really dangerous developments. One is that this political agreement, which has been forced through, and whenever we speak to states, they'll always say, you know what, we don't, We've put too much money and time into this now, we just can't have it fail. We know it's not ideal, uh, justice can wait. And I've had that sentence said to me verbatim from several states. Um, but you know, the, the priority here is just to get this agreement. We know it's flawed, but we, it's just too late. We put too much money into this and we put our face on it and our name to it. And so that was, that's been the kind of continuous um, narrative. So that's a problem. We also have this idea, the most powerful person in Libya at the moment, isn't part of this debate, um, but is controlling it from a distance. So General Haftar, uh, who is gearing himself up to be the new, the new leader, effectively. And what we've seen is he, he refused to take part of it, to take the control of it. Um, and it's been very clear because the, the current head of Ansemal has been trying to have meetings with him to sort of try to get him on board. And he's publicly been saying he's useless, I'm not meeting with him and undermining his credibility. Uh, and I think what we see now time and time again is actually it's, it's being reconfigured um, to bring him in. And how that then comes out is, is pretty terrifying. So watch this space. And actually, we know that Trump has said that he would, see, he would like to see him uh, be in charge. So, so there's two more things that I want to talk about. I know I'm going over. Um, one is this, the public understanding of justice in Libya and the conceptions, and then what civil society can do. So hopefully end on a, on a happy note. <laughs> um, so that there's obviously this real concept of victim justice in practice in Libya, and, and I think that is under you know given that there was a military well you know uh, came out of conflict in a fight that that's understandable that that was where we end. But I want to give a, a really odd example. So when we when the revolution first started. The National Transitional Council, which is the first transitional government in Libya, contacted us as an organization and said it was full of lawyers, which is what the blessing and a curse, because they wanted to do everything by the book, but it also meant they wanted to do everything by the book. Um, so they said, we need you to train the people that are signing up to fight for the revolution on the laws of armed conflict, because we don't want to commit crimes. We want to be a great revolution. 
It's one of the most surreal moments of my life was being in London training these guys with the Crosby Dolls on a sky call. Um, okay, so first of all, let's look at the guys. <laughs> just, just have a conversation. Um, and so that was odd, that was just so odd. <laughs> but what was really interesting was that there's this real concept that we want to understand the rules. And there was a, a, a really impressive implementation of the rules. So we would say to them, for example, that they shouldn't take only fighters under the age of 18. So then the next day, they all put up these signs on all the training camps saying, do not enter if you're under 18. Um, and then the government said, no, we need to do more. So they gave us, um, so what happened when they, they took control of the phone companies in Libya, they disseminated the rules to every single mobile phone in Libya. So everyone was unnoticed what the rules were. And so there's this really amazing momentum where you know, everyone wanted to play by rules. And when you look at all the UN reports in that period, there's very little that's being registered as having been committed by these fighters. Fast forward a few months and they're the winners. And they're not taking our calls anymore. They shut down the training camps. Uh, they're not asking for any more uh, training. And actually we see a very steady increase in violations from the same actors. And I think that was the most sort of real-time education in victory justice that I'd ever witnessed. Um, there's also the concept that I kept mentioning before, which is revolutionary legitimacy in the law, and it creates a sense of equity. It tells you that everything that was necessitated by the revolution is legal. Then, okay, it's all legal. Um, and so, talking a little bit about this sort of, you know, how people perceive just concepts in Libya. So, the definition of torture. I mentioned briefly that people, you know, define it differently to the way we define it, but. 67% of the people that we talk to define torture not by the act, but by the actor. So if he did it, it's torture. But if that guy does it, it's not. And for me, that's one of the most shocking statistics, actually. And, I, and it explains so much of what we've seen since then. Um, and then there's also, you know, just generally little faith in the justice system, because there's no knowledge of the justice system working for us throughout our entire history it's being used to prop up the leaders and not the citizens. And if you take a, another, so 67% of Libyans were born under Gaddafi. So we know nothing else. And so we went from one system, which was all based on impunity and, and laws created to oppress you, to a system that effectively, all we knew was that, and so they re we re-enshrined it, just changing the 1969 revolution for the February 17th revolution, but really it's the same concepts. Um, and I think this kind of this deterioration of the respect for the rule of law, because all these laws come out and they're horrible or indeed they're not respected, um, is really problematic when you think that the law we're currently drafting is the Constitution. Because it is enshrining this very flawed understanding of what the law is meant to do. And also, it's, in fact, if the Constitution doesn't work, then we just put a nail in the coffin of our of rule of law and it'd be a full stop. Because everyone's hoping that this Constitution somehow is going to address all the ills that have happened. And again, state after state that we speak to say to us, we need the Constitution, we need the Constitution. And you know why? Because in the LPA agreement, they have stated that when the Constitution is passed, that signals the end of the transitional period, i.e. the end of international community involvement. We can now leave this done, take the box. And so there's this massive drive by the international community to get this, the Constitution finished, regardless of the quality of the document. And I think that's really problematic, because from a perspective of transitional justice, actually, your most solid bet is if you get a good Constitution at the end of the transitional process. Um, and, and that's very far off. 
Um, but it's, yeah, this concept is just that, let's wrap this all up. Um, mentality is really problematic. So they're all a civil society. Enter the good guys, right? Um, I think I, I bring it up. I want to talk um, specifically about the civil society because what, what we've done, just because that's what I know best. Um, but I think there's it, it comes into two main way, things: is engaging people and monitoring. Are the two things you can do that you're really at the moment. Um, in terms of engagement, I'll, uh, uh, Daniel mentioned the story, and if we've got time, I might show a little video about it. Um, but with that, what we felt we needed to do is, is really to engage people to understand what they want out of the Constitution, and use that as a hook to then just discuss with them issues that are important that we're not getting access to information about. And it was, it was very, really very educational to us, because we went to 37 communities, saw 3,000 people. Out of the 37 communities, 25 had never been in, in contact with civil society before. And so it was a real kind of eye-opener as to just how intrinsic a lot of these issues were to people. Um, and the other bit is sort of getting people aware. So we've been doing a lot of legal capacity building. Um, a lot of the stuff that's been happening at the moment is, is teaching people how to document. But I don't think that's really enough. You need to also be teaching judges and prosecutors how to technically do the kinds of cases of these mass atrocities that we're now seeing. Um, and then there's also this, um, uh, within this monitoring role, so we've just launched this archive project, because what we found is people get, get taught how to document violations, they're going out and documenting violations, and then they're holding on to them. Then a militia raids their house and finds this stuff and kills them. Um, and we lose the evidence and we lose the activists, and <coughs> that's really not a good outcome. And so what we've just established is this um, mechanism online where you can give us information or your evidence in an encrypted way that can't be encrypted online, it can only be unencrypted on this side, you can tell I'm not comfortable with this language, but apparently that's what it means. Um, and it means they can then destroy the evidence, which to us is really important that these people can come safe if they're doing this kind of work on the ground. Um, there's other models where people are asked to bring information to Tunisia or whatever, but that's really troubling for us. And the idea that this archive will, will serve as a way to, to store all the information, but also should there ever be a transition justice mechanism in the country that we can hand it over to, or through the commission, or et cetera, and it be the start of a national archive. So that's quite an exciting project we just launched two months ago. Um, and then finally, the other kind of work we've been doing is a lot of strategic litigation, um, so trying to take some cases to international mechanisms. And one of the very little silver, silver linings in the situation living now is that it's very quickly to exhaust domestic remedies in Libya, because there is no judicial system. And so you can elevate cases quite quickly, and uh, we've got quite a few at the moment in the Africa Commission. All of them are torture cases so far, um, but we're hoping to look at other areas soon. Um, and I think what's been really inspiring, Daniel says, you know, was I optimistic? I'm, I'm not optimistic when I look at the top, or what are meant to be our political leaders, but what's incredible is really civil society was illegal under Gaddafi. We have no reference to this. And what happened in 2011 was this birth of this new kind of spirit, if you like, and this new job of career. And what I've seen is people who are putting their lives at risk to make this project work, this kind of Libya, this new Libya project work. And I think that's where my optimism comes from. Um, but it's very, it's, it's often curtailed by everything else. And then finally, I guess, within that optimism is this really, on a global scale, this closing space for civil society that we're seeing. Um, so funders have pulled out of Libya in a big scale saying it's because they consider it a failed state and that there's no, nothing that can be done by civil society. And so we've had our funding cut massively as a result of that and, and most civil society. 
the interest of the international community to end this process and move on has meant that they're not really engaging on any of the advocacy that we're doing. Um, and then also just the oppressive legislation that's coming out of countries like Libya and Egypt and, and the like, but in, in Libya it's been constitutionalized, the restrictions on civil society. So you can't, it will be very difficult to get that changed. So the, the draft of the constitution has a uh, voluntary restrictions on civil society. Um, so I will stop there. I have a, a video, which is about 10 minutes long, about the, the story tour. But I don't want to do that unless people are bored with my voice or we run out of time for questions. So do some questions here <laughs> so you can watch that. Thank you very much.